Lord God, we thank you for this picture, this building project that is set before us. Help us to understand it well, to rejoice in what you did then, what you have done in Jesus, and what you are doing now. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Craftsmanship. The skill involved in making something beautiful and or practical using your hands. The quality of design and work in something made by hand. Artistry. Here is a, uh, a shaker aphorism or a shaker philosophy statement that relates to the building of furniture. It reads as follows. Make every product better than it's ever been done before. Make the parts you cannot see as well as the parts you can see. Use only the best materials, even for the most everyday items. Give the same attention to the smallest detail as you do to the largest. Design every item you make to last forever. God wanted the tabernacle, and subsequently he wanted the temple to be built excellently, to be done beautifully, to be well made in its execution. No shortcuts were to be taken in its construction. No inferior quality components were to be used that, as we said last week, might be less expensive. And much to the dismay of some of us troubling to us, no duct tape was to be used in the construction of the tabernacle, which would leave some of us out of the construction project. So let's take a look at this today. Here's the way we are going to work through this portion of God's Word. We're going to look at this setting for Israel, and we're going to look at the skills and the abilities that are needed for the construction of the tabernacle. We're going to look at the people who are engaged in it and why. Why would God want it done? Why would he want it to be done this way? And then we're going to ask the same questions that we did last week, namely, what does this have to do with Jesus, and what does it have to do with us as we look at this passage today? So first of all, we look at the Israelites, what this all meant for them. What were the skills, the abilities that the Israelites needed to have in order to do this work? And I think it's fairly clear for us, right? As you read, as I read for us, the list of things that they had to be able to do. Of course, you read, first of all, that the Israelites had to be skilled in working with gold and with silver and bronze, which is to say you needed to have metallurgists involved in this project. Uh, you needed to be able to have people who cut stones, so you needed masons to be involved in the project. Uh, you, you needed people who could design jewelry and could cut gems and, and get them fitted onto various pieces of the tabernacle and of the clothing that would be involved. So there are various, various lists that are used to summarize all the types of people you need. Here are some of them. You need spinners, tailors, dyers, woodworkers, embroiderers, designers, carvers, perfumers, tanners, engravers. Uh, in summary, the, the statement that is made in, in Exodus 31.4 is basically we need people who are skilled in every craft. 
We need all the skills that we have to accomplish this. And then you look at the traits that are required from these craftsmen in particular. And what they need to have in order to be able to do this is ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. They have to have all four of those qualifications about them as they go about the work. Now, you can parse those in various ways. You can, you can look at them and say, this is what is meant by each one of those phrases. And sometimes it's good to do that, but frankly, a lot of people just parse those in a different way as it relates to a building project. But we can understand this. All of us have been involved in projects of some sort, be it a building project, be it uh, preparation of a school report, preparation of a meal. We've all been engaged in something and we have a sense of the component parts that are required going into it. So you needed to have intelligence as you consider the various materials that would be used in the project. You needed to be able to sort through what works well together. How does this interact with that? You had to have experience in being able to work through these various media that are going to be used in the construction of the tabernacle. You, you needed to have theoretical knowledge, practical knowledge of it. You had to have problem-solving abilities. You needed to be able to have eyes that could see the way the project would look when you completed it and also the ability to describe that to somebody else with whom you're working so that they had the same sense, the same vision that you had. And then, of course, you had to have craftsmanship, which is to say a lot of us can think of good things, but you also needed to have the hands to do it, to bring it to reality. So uh, some of you know, because you've been over to my house recently, uh, and, or you know because... Uh, we do this every spring, but Lauren and I are engaged in this massive construction, reconstruction, brick laying, all sorts of things uh, that we're, we're doing in our house right now. And one of the things that we're doing is a little kitchen garden that involves some kind of, for me, intricate raised beds. So not just 90 degree angles, but rather complex angles on some raised beds. So we had the idea for this, it was a couple of weeks ago when I was on vacation, and we, we drew it up on paper, and Nate helped us with the design of it. Uh, and then I went out and got the materials. It was Saturday of the week of vacation, and this was the day that I designated for the building of these beds. Now, Nate is familiar with my building abilities, or lack thereof. And so we're kind of working through it. We're working through it on paper. We've got it drawn to scale. We've got graph paper, and we're trying to figure out the angles. We've got protractors that we're using to figure out the angles on various things at which we need to cut it. And Nate's looking, looking at me going, Dad, you need help. You're, you're not going to be able to do this. He says, we, we've got to go get Luke. We've got to bring in the Calvary. Now, Luke is a neighbor who lives catty corner from us who is a mechanical engineer. And uh, Luke has come in and bailed me out of many a project along the way. And I said, listen, I can't get Luke. I can't get him because as he's seen all of this material dumped on the driveway, he's already said to me that I'm avoiding your house. I'm not coming anywhere close because I know what's going to happen if I come up there. So we go outside, and sure enough, Luke comes up within five minutes with his wife. And Nate's like, the Calvary is here. I'm so glad you're here. I, I define for him what we're doing, what we're trying to do. And Luke looks at it and goes, 
Okay, what you're going to need to do that is this type of a saw with this type of an extension handle on it. You got two by 12s, and so this is what you're going to need to do with it. This is how you're going to need to figure out the angles. And I said to him, well, well Luke, what I got is this circular saw. And he said, listen, I've got all that stuff. Send Nate with me. I'll go get the stuff, and I'll show you how to use uh, all of the things that are there. He's a skilled craftsman. He knows what he's doing, and he can explain it to me so that we can work it out together and then do it for the tabernacle. God didn't want hacks involved in the construction, involved in any part of the artistry that went into the tabernacle. He wanted excellence. He didn't want rough carpenters. He wanted finished carpenters to be doing the work. He didn't want the person who was the casual artist. He wanted the professional artist, the best of the best. Where do you find people like that? You know where you find them? You find them from this numerous group of people who have been slaves in Egypt for centuries, working on all sorts of art projects and construction projects for the Egyptians. You've got a whole community of craftsmen who have come out of Egypt with an enormous set of skills. But here's what you don't want. You don't want people who have worked for generations as slaves to approach this construction project as slaves. You want them to come differently. In other words, you want them to come freely. You don't want to say to them, okay, now that you're out of Egypt, I've got more construction work for you to do, just like you did when you were back there. Now do it. Rather, you want their hearts stirred so now all of these skills that over the the centuries had been forced for them to do, they can now engage for the service of Yahweh willingly. And so that is emphasized in all of these texts about how the people, we looked at this last week in terms of how they were to give, and then this week in terms of how they are to serve in this project of the actual construction. And make note of the fact that it was skilled women and skilled men. Whoever had a particular talent in a particular area, they were to be able to use it. Note that not all Israel engaged in this project. That's what I said. You you wanted the best here for this project, so that meant not everybody could do it. But the people who were skilled, whether men or women, were the people who were going to build the temple in all of its scope and all of the detail that God had made for it. Now, of course, I have deliberately left out the main qualification for doing the work of the temple, and particularly for the two men who are appointed as, if you will, the foremen of this particular project. And that is found for us both in chapter 31 and in chapter 35. I'll read from chapter 31. Namely, regarding Bezalel, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, I left it out because I wanted to highlight it. I wanted to say those other things first and highlight this one in terms of how this language works and how this process works so that Bezalel is competent and called to do this work, filled with the Spirit of God. That is language that is more or less familiar to us. We're used to language like that. It's very New Testament language and even later Old Testament language. 
But to this point in Scripture, that's the first time that phrase has been used as that phrase filled with the Spirit of God. There are two earlier references to the Spirit of God in the Bible to this point, and they are very, very relevant to what we're talking about right here. If you've got your Bibles open, you, you don't, I'll, I'll read them for you. The first, uh, excuse me, the second of the two is found back in the book of Genesis, and, and listen to the description of it here. It's found in Genesis chapter 41 regarding Joseph. After Joseph had interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh and given to Pharaoh the plan for how to sustain the people in the midst of the famine, this is what Pharaoh says about Joseph. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Now think about the task and the language that is being described there. Joseph has charge over Egypt, over watching over that house. In order to do that, he is filled with the Spirit of God. Filled isn't there. Uh, Pharaoh's observation is that he has the Spirit of God. But he's got the skills to do it. He's got the knowledge, he's got the insight to be able to do this work that God has appointed him to do in the same way now or in a similar pattern to which Bezalel and Aholiab are filled with the Spirit with the ability to do a work that has been appointed to them by God. The other place where the Spirit of God is used in the Bible up to this point is at the very beginning of your Bibles. And it also is very relevant to this passage. Because at the very beginning of the great construction work of a great house, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters, poised, ready to create a dwelling place, a blank canvas before the Spirit of God waiting for the Word. Give me the Word to act, to create, and I'll make it through the Son, for the Son, by the Son, through the Spirit. The Spirit of God is involved in both this creative work of God from the very beginning, in the preserving work of God through Joseph as he is in Egypt. The Spirit in Exodus gifts these two men in particular to head up this work, Bezalel and Aholiab. And I think it would be a mistake for us to think of these two guys who, in their service while they were in Egypt, in their slavery while they were in Egypt, it would be a mistake to think of them as probably a baker, a field hand, i.e., people who didn't have any abilities at all, and then all of a sudden, because the Spirit of God came upon them, wham, they were master craftsmen at all of these particular jobs. I think that's unlikely. I think what is far more likely is what we understand, that is to say, experience is critical in craftsmanship. You grow every time you do a project. You start something, you're not very good at it, you do it after a while, you become better at it. We might say then that these men were especially 
gifted, equipped, and called by the Spirit of God to this work. They had the abilities given to them by God to consider the whole and to employ the people across the spectrum of the work that needed to be done for the tabernacle. And then there's one other thing that they're gifted in, and I think this is important for us to hear because it relates to what I just said. In chapter 35, when we read about them, it says in verse 34, he has inspired him to teach, Bezalel, both him and Aholiab. They are not only to be doers of the work, but they are the guys who take people as apprentices and say, let me show you how to do this. They're Luke giving me a tool and saying, this is how you use this particular tool, which I think affirms that the people, that, that, that as much as there was a spiritual process that was going on here, a gifting by the Spirit of God, it was a gifting according to the experiences that they had had in their life up to this point. Train those people, the ones who exhibit the kind of skills that I'm looking for, for this project, train them. And I think it's a statement for us. This is a little parenthesis. It really belongs at the end of the sermon. But it is a statement for us to say that though we have been given gifts by the Spirit of God for service to the ministry of the church, we must be trained in those very same gifts that God has given to us. They don't just work automatically. And those gifts must be used and developed by us. Because the more that you do them, the more accomplished you will be in using that particular gift for the glory of God and the service of others. So why? What's the point? Why does, why does God want them to go through this? Why this kind of excellence? Why these people engaged in the project? I think we can answer this briefly because I think the answer to it is actually fairly self-evident in all that we've seen in Exodus to this point. All of this is a statement about the value of what is taking place, about the seriousness with which it ought be done, and about the care that is needed when approaching God in worship and in a life lived before Him. It basically says to us, do not take God, His presence, or His worship lightly, casually, carelessly, as a nice little thing to do. He is a consuming fire. And everything that you do associated with Him should be done to the best of your ability, with the best materials that you have to do it, with the best skill that you can employ. God wants out of them, God wants out of us the best of the best that we have to offer Him, and nothing less. There's a critical phrase that's, that's contained in here, and it's actually one that we're going to look at in two weeks regarding the vestments that are prepared for Aaron and for his sons for the priesthood. They are prepared for beauty and for glory, and that's why you're to do this work. You're to do this work for beauty and for glory in excellent craftsmanship. So what does all this have to do with Jesus? Well, Jesus has a call from his Father to build. A young woman asked a question. 
how can it be that I will have a son since I'm a virgin? And the answer from the angel is a creation answer. The Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And the one born of you shall be called the Son of God. See the, see the creative parallel to the very beginning of time? The Holy Spirit hovering above creation, poised to create. Now the Holy Spirit comes upon a virgin and is poised to create, not the Son of God, who is eternally existent, but Jesus, the God-man, is brought into this world. And in order to do the work that God has given him to do, the building that God has calling, called him to do, accomplishing that work, he must be filled with the Spirit of God. And so at his baptism, the dove comes down and settles upon him. And Jesus, the Son of God, is filled with the Spirit of God to accomplish the purpose for which he has been sent. As Bezalel, as a holy Ab, were filled with the Spirit of God, though more so. And thus Jesus can say of his own building project, tear it down, the temple, and I'll build it again in three days. The work he had to do, the work Jesus had to do, is the work of tabernacling. He had to be the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, live and tabernacle amongst the people and do the work of the tabernacle for which the tabernacle was created, which is to say the priesthood needed, required. He needed to have the blood shed. He needed to pour the blood across, not an earthly tabernacle, but the one that is in heaven. His work, like Bezalel's work, included growing in wisdom and knowledge and stature. You remember those statements made about Jesus? And he grew in wisdom, knowledge, stature, with favor with God and with men. And like Bezalel, the ministry of Jesus Christ, as much as his redemptive work was his work and his work alone to do and to accomplish, the ministry of Jesus Christ was one of teaching, equipped filled with the Spirit of God in order to teach others about how to do the work that God had called them to do. His work, his redemptive work, would be completed, finished with his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. But there is a work that he started while he was on earth, and it continues to this very day. It is a construction project. He does it with excellence. He does it with craftsmanship, and he will bring it to absolute perfection. And it is summarized by the words that are on the front of your bulletin. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is filled with the Spirit of God for a far greater building project than the one done by Bezalel and Aholiab, as wonderful as it was. Jesus, when he says, I will build my church, certainly isn't talking about Hagia Sophia, 
He's not talking about the cathedral in Cologne. He's not talking about Westminster or St. Paul's or St. Peter's. He's not talking about a temple. He's not talking about a tabernacle. He's not talking about a building like this, but something far more precious. When Jesus says, I will build my church, he is talking, of course, about us. And the heavenly city that he's building, that he's preparing for his bride in which we will dwell with him. So what does Bezalel have to say to us? What are we to take from this? Now, I want to caution here for a moment. Before we rush into an application, we will be tempted at this point, I think as Reformed believers in particular, to rush into perhaps an application to the work that we do with our hands, arts, and excellence in various arts. It would be a mistake to go there first. Okay? It would, it would be aiming at something, and if you don't aim at the right thing, which is to say God first, the kingdom of God first, and you aim at something secondary, which is excellence in artistry, what you will find is vanity. I'm going to preach on this in two, uh, next week in the evening. Solomon, the temple builder, in charge of the project, a man who should have got it, aims part of his life at the temple and finds rich fulfillment, aims part of his life at artistry itself and finds only vanity. You got to aim right. You got to aim at first things first. So first things first, what does this say to us? What is the primary application for us as the people of God in our days? Let Paul answer the question for you. Ephesians 2 chapter um, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. So then you thus You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. You are the building. You are the build. You are the living stones. You are the tabernacle, the temple. You are the very costly and precious elements that are being gathered together by God, purified and put together into the tabernacle or into the temple, whichever language you would like to use. You're the object of the build, the material of the builder, the excellence and the skill which is sought by the master builder, Jesus Christ, is that which he has given to you. He is making you perfect. He is cutting, engraving, fashioning, carving, embroidering, you to be just the way he wants you to be at his return. The beauty that he seeks is the beauty that he gives through his spirit to you. So the application, first of all, is not something for you to do to be like Bezalel, 
but rather it is something to receive. You're the build. You're the precious one. Being built into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Then, understanding that, understanding that you are the object of the build, then, then and only then recognize that you, like Israel, have been equipped for the build. To be builders. And that is what we read together in Ephesians chapter 4. Many of you have heard that Ephesians chapter 4 passage a number of times. Now hear it and lay it up against what we just read about the construction of the tabernacle. Jesus Christ ascends, and as he's ascending up, what is the last thing that he's doing with the Spirit of God? Having been equipped himself by the Spirit of God for the ministry, having been created on earth as the God-man by the Spirit of God through the conception in Mary. What is the last thing he does? Distributes. He gives it out. He ascends on high and he gives gifts to men. And what does he do? Men and women. What's the purpose of the gifts that he distributes? Build up the body in love. Build up the body in love. You and I have a construction project, but it's not bricks and mortar. The first application of this passage today is not come and join us on a work day here at the church. That's great. I'm glad to have you join us from the, uh, on a work day, but that's not the first application. Build up one another in love. And unlike Israel, who had to have every perfectly skilled craftsman and only the best working on this project, Ephesians 4 emphasizes that I want every joint, every ligament, every person supplying that which is lacking in the body so that the body functions well. It takes all of us. Not some of us, not one of us, not a few of us, not 10% of us, not 20% of us. It takes all of us engaged in the building up of the body in love because all of us have been gifted. The Spirit has been more liberally poured out now in the age of the new covenant so that the gifting now is diffuse. It's amongst all of us for this temple, this dwelling place of God. Thus, Paul, the apostle, can describe himself in Corinthians as a master builder because I think well about how to use my gifts for the building up of the body. Thus, Acts chapter 6, where deacons are called to serve in the church. You're looking for men who are, what? Filled with the Spirit of God for the service that is given to them in the church of Jesus Christ. And so the call of this passage becomes to us to say and to recognize that you have been gifted and called by God to serve in the construction project that continues until the return of Jesus Christ. Use then the gifts, the spiritual gifts that you have been given willingly, joyfully, seek to learn about them, to develop them, and to serve this body to whom you have committed yourself first and foremost. Love the church. Don't give it second best. Don't give it your second time. Don't give it your second efforts. Don't give it your leftovers. That would be like Israel, saying, I'm going to hold back these nice gems. These are really nice gems. I'm holding those back. 
Give the church your best. That's how you apply this passage. The third application is then whatever your hand finds to do, whatever it is, do it with all of your might. Do it with all of the craftsmanship, all of the knowledge, all of the ability, all of the intelligence that you have. Do it for the glory of God. In so doing, whatever it is you are doing, you are imitating the Creator God and how He has both created you and is recreating you. Make art intelligently, with knowledge, with wisdom, with skill. Enjoy art. Make clothes. Make blankets. Make furniture. Make gardens. Pathways. Poems. Books. Music. Meals. Bread. Cookies. Make babies. Make love. Make families. Make homes. Make pottery. Make jewelry. I was developing that list and trying to think of everybody's work, everybody's hobbies. Make, make good chemicals. Make good, useful medical drugs for us. Make it with craftsmanship for beauty and for the glory of God. And when you do those things, all of us have experienced this, right? We get done a project, we've done something, we've created something, little, big, doesn't matter. And we have this odd sense of satisfaction, this sense of, that was good. And what you've tapped into there is how you've been created. You've been created in the image of a creating God, and so when you do something that produces something, it registers that, wait, that's a good thing. You've tapped into the original creative purposes for which you have been made. But aim, aim, aim at God first, at the church first. And then, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray.